This is The Guardian. A warning before we get started. On today's episode, we're discussing child sexual abuse and the way the Catholic Church has handled allegations of clergy abuse over the years, which some listeners could find distressing. Please take care and remember you can call the Blue Knot Foundation for support. It's an organisation supporting those affected by complex trauma. And their number is 1300 657 380. Jane Lee here, coming to you from Wadundjeri Land, and this is the full story. Cardinal George Pell has died in Rome at the age of 81. Australia's highest ranking Catholic cleric has died after complications from a hip replacement surgery. At the height of his career, George Pell loomed large as the voice and face of the Catholic Church in Australia. For uh, many uh, people, particularly of the Catholic faith, this will be a difficult day and I express my condolences to all those who are mourning today. Pell was a powerful defender of the church, its conservative values and the Catholic faith. His legacy will remain in our hearts and all the faithful here in Australia and around the world. During his lifetime, he also came to represent the church's failure to adequately respond to crimes committed against children by clergy and its resistance to change. I, I struggle to see any good in the man and sort of people uh, sort of saying how great he was and, and um, you know, I, I just really struggle with that. Today, journalist David Marr reflects on the life and legacy of George Pell. It's Monday the 16th of January. So, David, you've written extensively about George Pell over many years now. How would you sum up the man and the life that he led? He was a danger to children. He was a danger to children. Not only himself, but in his role as a priest, an auxiliary bishop and an archbishop, he was a danger to children. He did not protect them. He put them in danger. He left them in danger. His career is an iconic career of a very high-ranking prelate in the Catholic Church who did not protect children. Now, he had old-fashioned theological views. He was Rome's operator in Australia to drag the Australian Church into line, to take it back to its um, fundamentalist Catholic position that is... um, quite unnatural to the Catholic Church in Australia. He was here to beat the church into submission. He was a very vocal, powerful voice for the conservative wing, certainly of the Catholic Church, over many years. Can you tell me a little bit about that and particularly about some of the views that he espoused over the years? You do have to understand that his kind of church is a shame machine. It is run by shame. Shame and forgiveness. That is the machinery at work there. That requires lots of shame. And so you have to oppose the changes in society which are becoming uh, relaxed about homosexuality, about people living um, unmarried together, um, about adultery, as the church would call it. He opposed that relaxation of society's views because he had to maintain shame. 
It interests me, of course, that he was um, an absolutist warrior against homosexuals. Homosexuality, as far as he was concerned, had to remain a usefully shameful sin for the church. He said when confronted once, um, you know, does it worry you that your kind of preaching would lead young gay men to suicide? And he said, well, that should teach them to change their ways. At one point, Pell was the financial controller to the Vatican and the third most senior Australian figure within the church hierarchy. What was it about Pell that helped him gain such influence and power both within and outside the church? Pell was a very able administrator. He was good at taking broken institutions and putting them back together. He was good at breaking institutions and remaking them in the image that he wanted. He was very good at running things. And he had an acute instinct for the money. Pell's record in Australia in relation particularly to the victims of child sexual abuse by priests, was to preserve the assets of the church. And he did a magnificent job. And he went to the Vatican, them knowing that, that he had saved, despite the fact that the Australian church has paid out a gigantic amount of money by now to those victims. But back then, it was so limited. He was superb at maintaining the assets of the church. And under Pell, billions of euros sloshing around, unaccounted for in the Vatican, were identified. But typically, the Pope lost courage and the Pope sacked him. But the work he did there was brave, good and skilled. I'm here to announce that I will be recommending to the Governor-General that a Royal Commission be appointed to inquire into institutional responses to instances of al- and allegations of child abuse in Australia. In 2013, the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse was called by the Gillard Government. This, I hope, will help with healing but I specifically hope that its recommendations will help us ensure that this never, ever happens again. And this started a national reckoning on abuse, not just in the church, but in basically all institutions where children were supposed to be cared for, you know, in out-of-home care, in after-school care, swimming teams, brownies, scouts, you name it. And it was revealed by the Catholic Church's own account that 4,444 people made complaints of child sexual abuse to the Catholic authorities between January 1980 and February 2015. What did that moment mean for the Church and for Pell particularly? Transparency. The thing that that institution at that time, hated, had done all it could to prevent. But this Royal Commission had the power to produce documents, make the church give up its documents, and it has to be said that the church appointed a team that made sure those documents were produced. But the scale of it, the scale of it was just... It was just awful. Now, don't imagine for a moment that the Catholic Church was alone amongst institutions 
being compelled to bring out their filthy laundry. Other churches were as well, the Anglican Church, the Presbyterian Church, and organisations, terrible, terrible proof of abuse in other organisations. But the Catholic Church was the big one, and the figures were enormous, enormous. It was, it was, it was appalling. Pell's power rested in his knowledge. He always knew what was going on. You couldn't put anything over Pell. His information was faultless. He knew the facts. That made him powerful. Mm. You couldn't outmaneuver Pell. He was very good at knowing how to exercise power. He found out the truth. That's what made him so powerful in the Vatican. And suddenly there were these days and days and days of testimony when, like a naive child, he somehow just didn't know what was going on around him. And it was, it was pretty depressing, actually. It was pretty, it was pretty humiliating for Pell. George Pell appeared before the Royal Commission to answer questions about how he handled clergy abuse allegations early in his career in Victoria, including some involving Jared Ridsdale, who's now known as Australia's most notorious pedophile priest. What did the Royal Commission find was his involvement in handling allegations against Ridsdale? Ridsdale was one of a number of pedophile priests operating in the Diocese of Ballarat. They were known to be pedophiles by the bishop, and the Royal Commission came to the conclusion that Pell knew they were pedophiles as well. At that time in Ballarat, some kids came to Pell and said, naming a a priest or brother, that he was abusing kids. Pell didn't even investigate it. Whatever he knew, Pell did nothing as a priest to protect children. There were priests in Ballarat who were heroic. They went in to presbyteries and dragged kids out who were being forced to sleep in priests' bedrooms so that they could be easily abused. They rescued kids. They demanded action. Pell, none of that, none of that, none of that. Pell was faced with a choice. As a young priest, did he look after the kids or did he look after his career? That was a choice facing priests all over the world. And all over the world... They failed, as Pell failed, to decide that the children were more important than his promotion, his prospects inside the church. And he made that decision in Ballarat early. Ridsdale is one of the worst pedophiles in the recent history of the world church. The world church. And after all these years, he has still, in the last few months, been on trial for fresh charges to which he has pleaded guilty. He is still going through the courts for his crimes. Pell sat on a committee that gave Ridsdale a fresh parish after the parish he was in was complaining about his depredations of children. 
They gave him a fresh parish, and then he was moved to the Catholic Information Office in Sydney. He had a time in, a, in an institute in New Mexico, which was supposed to cure pedophiles. Children were not protected by Pell from Ridsdale. When he was facing, I think, his first charges in Melbourne, Pell was the auxiliary bishop of Melbourne. Now, an auxiliary bishop is the second in command in an archdiocese. And Pell walked Ridsdale to court that morning. And there is a famous image of them with Ridsdale in a spivvy white suit and dark glasses and Pell all in black looking saintly by his side as they went to the trial. Pell says that he was asked to go with Ridsdale because it might help lessen his sentence. What a remarkable thing Mm. for an auxiliary bishop to do. And that image of Pell with Ridsdale is one of the defining images of Pell's slow fall. The way that Pell responded in each of these cases that you've described really reflects his broader attitude to the way the church should respond to abuse allegations. Yes, times were changing and it was becoming clear that there would soon be an avalanche of litigation. When Pell became Archbishop of Melbourne, the bishops of Australia were about to put in place for the whole of Australia a scheme called Towards Healing. He broke away and a few days before the national scheme was announced, He had a scheme of his own in Melbourne called the Melbourne Response. And the Melbourne Response, which he boasted was the first Catholic in-house mechanism for addressing the needs of victims, perhaps in the world, had as its overriding purpose protecting the assets of the church so that at a time when victims were winning damages suits in the United States running into the millions... The Melbourne response locked victims into a 50 grand. The problem for Pell with the towards healing model was that it didn't have a cap. He wanted to cap the amount of money that the church had to pay to the people it had very often destroyed. And they also had to sign a piece of paper to say that they would never take action against the church. And in the early days, they also promised to be silent about what had happened to them. So they bought their silence, they disarmed them in any uh, court disputes, 50 grand. And that's what Pell imposed. Now, it's overturned now and and the people who signed those pieces of paper can once again sue. But at the time, it saved the church a great deal of money. Pell was also heavily involved in an important civil lawsuit against the Sydney Archdiocese by clergy abuse survivor John Ellis in 2007, which resulted in a ruling that's known commonly as the Ellis Defence for the Catholic Church. Can you talk us through how important this was? John Ellis had been abused for many years by a priest. John Ellis was a lawyer. He came to the church in New South Wales shortly after Pell had been translated from Melbourne to Sydney to become the Cardinal Archbishop of Sydney, Ellis came asking for compensation, for redress. And Pell decided that this was a time when an old rule of the courts had to be reasserted and 
This is kind of beyond belief, but these were the rules of the law in Australia. The first was that priests are not employees. You know, they're somehow kind of, I don't know, individual contractors or something like that, so that the church isn't actually responsible for their bad behaviour. This, this was a secular legal principle. And the second was that the assets of the church were not available in court cases against pedophile priests because they were held by trustees under terms that did not include compensating the victims of child abuse. Pell decided that he would fight Ellis to reassert these bizarre rules, and it is to the disgrace of the New South Wales Court of Appeal that it upheld the old rules in Canada and in Britain, those rules were being overturned by the courts who were looking to the reality of the organisation of the Catholic Church, not its very, very clever organisation, but the reality. But in New South Wales, um, the old archaic principles were upheld so that this poor man was not given um, any compensation. He was given an enormous legal bill. He was threatened with bankruptcy, um, the viciousness of it is actually to sit there in the Royal Commission and to hear Pell being questioned about what he did to John Ellis was one of the truly chilling passages of the Royal Commission. And Pell sort of blamed his lawyers, caused Chambers Westgarth. He would sort of say that, oh, the lawyers made him do it. And there was a magnificent moment when counsel assisting the Royal Commission said to Pell, Cardinal, were cause your morals advisers? And there was just this extraordinary hush in the room. And he said, no, they weren't. But what Pell was doing was guarding the assets of his church, of the glorious church. And many years after that case, in 2014, when Pell was publicly appearing before the Royal Commission, he actually apologised to John Ellis for the way the church treated him during that case. Yes. But nine years later, John Ellis says this apology still doesn't provide him any comfort. It was a very controlled and contrived, you know, orchestrated event. It was given, you know, here was an opportunity to look me in the eye and engage and say, you know, I was wrong, we've made some terrible mistakes and that's harmed you awfully and, you know, we just can't apologise enough for that. But, you know, even though that was orchestrated as a personal apology so that he could tick the box and say, I've apologised to John Ellis, um, it didn't even look me in the eye. Um, didn't even look towards me um, while delivering that that apology. The Ellis defence, as a result of the Royal Commission's work, has been overturned, I think, now in every jurisdiction in Australia. Don't work anymore. You look at the mm. reality. This is an immensely wealthy institution with very tight control over its priests. It is responsible for what its priests do and it must pay recompense to those its priests damage. Next, the future of the Catholic Church. 
Conservative Catholics see Pell as a staunch defender of the church's values against modern challenges, and they also see him as a defender against attacks from outsiders who seek to diminish the church's moral authority. And this has become harder to do over the years as there's been greater public scrutiny over generations of clergy abuse. What would you say Pell's argument was against the church's critics? Pell's argument and the argument of those close to him and who now, after his death, are um, singing mighty anthems in his praise is something that we we have to grapple with, and that is that the church essentially holds the Western world together, that without the church, everything would fall apart. That's the view of many very conservative um, people, not only in Australia, United States, in Europe, that this powerful church, confident and rich, holds the West together, and that Pell was a mighty warrior in the war to maintain the machinery of civilization in the face of secular pressure, in the face of um, those people who don't believe in God, don't believe in the rules of the church, don't see why the church has got such political authority, sees the church as responsible for, for instance, the abuse of children for God knows how many generations. I mean, this didn't start in 1970. Those, def- those people sort of say to themselves, look, I know the church fails from time to time, but it is what holds civilization together and therefore we must always be celebrating it and protecting its power. That's what Pell was. He was was the leader of that kind of thinking. Now, that kind of thinking has repercussions for ordinary people, ordinary Australians, which are pretty horrible. Um, Of course, I'm speaking as a gay man when I say that, horrible repercussions. But those people sincerely believe that without the church, we don't have civilization. And therefore, the price you pay is turning a blind eye, say, not a completely blind eye, but you don't get too upset by generations of the abuse of children. Now, how effective was Pell in advancing this argument, do you think, during his lifetime? One of the things that made Pell effective from the time of him actually being a priest all his life was that he moved very easily in the political world. Um, He got on with politicians, they got on with him. He was tremendously good at persuading politicians to fund church causes. He persuaded politicians, for instance, to set up a Catholic university system in Australia. And time and time again, he proved effective in maintaining and indeed advancing the privileges of the church. Since the Royal Commission, we've seen the introduction of Australia's redress scheme for historic child sexual abuse survivors. We've seen states and territories strengthen laws compelling authorities to report abuse to police. Huge changes have been sweeping across the nation since then to try to prevent this sort of thing from happening again. Did Pell ultimately fail in shielding the church from taking greater responsibility for clergy abuse as an institution? Yes and no. I mean, the position of the church in Australia now is much more regulated and is much more is much more amenable to the law. The old um, 
notion that church people had that the Catholic Church somehow stood outside the law. You didn't go to the police um, because we had our own ways of policing, we had our own courts, that kind of argument. That now, it's impossible to sustain that in the way that you once could sustain it in Australia. The church is part of civil life now. But on the other hand, the church is still fighting the claims of survivors hard as nails in the, in the courts, hard as nails. They were re- the church was recently advancing an argument that you couldn't sue one of the orders. I forget which order it was now, but you couldn't sue one of the orders because the priest responsible for these terrible depredations against children had died and therefore the church couldn't get a fair trial because the accused priests had died. They seriously advanced that argument in a modern courthouse and they were told to get lost, which is good. In 2017, Pell was charged with historic child sexual abuse offences, which he maintained he was innocent of. He faced a series of criminal trials and was convicted and later cleared of molesting two teenage choir boys while he was Archbishop of Melbourne. The public was really divided about what this case represented symbolically. You know, you've got the church's loudest defender being accused of abuse himself late in his life. How did survivors and supporters of Pell react to his initial guilty verdict? To me as an observer, it gave a great deal of comfort to survivors um, that this mighty prince of the church had been convicted of this squalid crime. It suggested the possibilities of justice in the face of power. Now, there were all sorts of problems with the trials because none of us have actually seen the evidence of Pell's accuser. The rules of the courts in Victoria are that that evidence is given in private. So the public can't judge the strength of those allegations. Pell's supporters need to explain this process to themselves. Why was he charged? Why was he prosecuted? Why was he prosecuted twice? Why, when ultimately he's going to be acquitted? And their answer is malicious secularists ganging up on a principled figure in the Catholic Church who represents um, all of the forces that secularists despise. Things like that. I mean, really Baroque uh, theories. Some of them include money coming from the Vatican, hot money coming from the Vatican to undermine him. Um, They include um, a religiously prejudiced um, Victorian police force. And at the centre of them is the evidence of the accuser, which we have never heard. Bits we know, but we have never heard it. So those theories survive. And he's seen by many people as a martyr. Now, a unanimous decision of the High Court has to be respected. Remember this, when he was acquitted by the High Court, his accuser, the man who had brought the charges and you know, had put Pell through these trials, said that he understood the verdict of the High Court and that he supported the view that guilty verdicts must always be certain beyond reasonable doubt. He himself, he himself made this beautifully principled statement. Now, whatever 
grim disappointment he must have been feeling about the ultimate outcome of this process. That was so decent, so decent and so principled. Um, I wish I could see all the evidence so that I could, um, I could feel confident about it myself. But nevertheless, there was enough in those allegations to convince the police, the Director of Public Prosecutions in Victoria, one jury, the Victorian Court of Appeal. A lot of people along the way were convinced that Pell, in an open and often crowded room, had committed these crimes. And I respect the verdict of the High Court and I would like those defenders of Pell to respect the fact that a lot of decent professional people along the way believed he was guilty. There needs to be respect on both sides for this process that ended in a spectacular acquittal. Pell's own efforts to protect the church were viewed by many Australians and many Catholics um, as abhorrent. But these reflected the approach that many generations of senior clergy took before him, you know, to deflect criticism, to prioritise the church over survivors. That didn't begin with Pell. You know, and, and I know many Catholics did appreciate the fact that he was defending the church at a time when everyone else seemed to be attacking it. So looking back now at his life, what did he really achieve for the Catholic church, do you think? Pell defended the church. He also apologised. There are many many apologies by Pell. Um, it's become a time, hasn't it, when you don't pay much attention to apologies unless they're followed by action. He admitted a great deal of what had gone wrong. He would not admit his role in what had gone wrong. He would not admit that the underlying instinct of the church is still preservation and fighting to maintain its assets and its prestige. He could not face that, and it is going to require political courage in this country to maintain scrutiny of the church. The church is very influential. It's, it is powerful in political circles. There, there continues to be strong advocacy in political circles for leaving the church alone and letting it get on with its, you know, getting on with its business but scrutiny must continue. And Pell's legacy is going to compel that scrutiny to continue. He died with a lot of unfinished business on his hands. Mm. And that business has to be finished. It has to be finished. This stuff has to be admitted, accounted for and stopped. And obviously things are so much better for children now, so very much better but the institution still has to be held to account. Mm. And Pell made sure that in the end it wasn't quite held to account. It still has to be. And how do you think George Pell should be remembered? For everything that happened. We don't need some easy conclusion. He's a saint. He was a, he was a sinner. He should be remembered for everything he did. And that's a complex story, and there are pluses as well as mighty minuses. Um, he was a phenomenon in Australian history. 
He, he joins the mighty Catholic bishops of Australian history, polling right there at the beginning, um, all the way through to Pell at the end. He's got to be remembered truthfully, not with incense and trumpet calls. He needs to be remembered truthfully for what he did well and what he did badly, because all of it is instructive, not only for his institution, but for the role of that institution in the political life of this country, which is a formidable, important role. He has to be remembered truthfully, and the truth has to continue to be told about him. That was David Marr. He's a Walkley Award-winning journalist and the author of The Prince, Faith, Abuse and George Pell, published by Black Ink Books. If this episode has raised any concerns for you, please reach out for support. Children can call the Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800 and adults can call the Blue Knot Foundation on 1300 657 380. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, Ellen Leebeater and myself. Additional production by Christopher Norse, who interviewed John Ellis, and Henry Bellow. He spoke with people who attended a mass held for George Pell in Ballarat last week. Their words were played at the start of this episode. Sound design and mixing was by Daniel Simo. The executive producer for this episode was Gabrielle Jackson. I'm Jane Lee. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. <laughs>